Would you turn back to Proverbs chapter 11 and the verses we read as we look at the generosity uh, of God's people? This generosity of heart and an open handed towards all of our gifts and all of our possessions and all of our time and all of our money is to be a universal trait among the people of God. Now, if, if we are wealthy, we often think that generosity is for other, other people, um, whether that's because of the way that we've been caught up in this powerful temptation uh, to love money above others, or the unwillingness to take financial risk, risks because it may cause harm to our business or our family, or by being so invested in the world that there's little time to give to others. We think generosity is for others. But maybe if, if we are not wealthy, if we are poorer, we can also think that generosity is for other people. After all, we have little left to give at the end of each month. And we say, how could I ever survive or thrive if I am generous? Yet God commends in Proverbs the generous, whether we are strong in financial position, whether we have much time or gifts to give to others. He commends us whether we are wealthy or whether we are poor, as long as we are generous, that we are to be a people who are overabundant in the way that we give, not just financially, but in gifts and in time. Remember the commendation of Christ as he looked at that widow just throw in a little mite or two into the, like, I was looking at her going, she hasn't given much. Christ says, no, she's given her all. She's one of the most generous people I've ever met. Though poor, she's given everything. Or when we come to this book of Proverbs and we look at who it is that is giving us these commands about generosity and what we should be like, he's one of the wealthiest men who has ever lived. It's this man called Solomon who's talking about generosity in the book of Proverbs. It's been estimated that Solomon had a personal wealth of 1.7 trillion pounds in today's currency, which makes Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos look like paupers, doesn't it? They've only got 350 billion pounds between them. Poor people, poor people. But here is Solomon, one of the wealthiest men who's ever lived, and yet he talks about the necessity of generosity, because he saw it at the heart of his expression of trust in God, the living God, the one who he knew he could lose everything. He could give everything away, and yet he'd still have the Lord of heaven. He was a man with a living faith in a generous God. We read earlier, didn't we, from the beginning of Psalm 104, at the beginning of our service, what we didn't read, uh, go on to read, was how the song expresses God's generosity in creation. Listen to these words. You might want to read them from Psalm 104, verse 10 to 18, talking about the generosity of God in his creation. Listen to this. Amazing. It says, the Lord sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They Give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. 
He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badges. Why is he telling us all this information? Well, two things become apparent in those verses. The first is that our God is not short on generosity. He's not short on generosity. He's not only thought about what the creatures and the people he has made need in order to survive. survive. He's thought about what everything needs in order to thrive and enjoy the life that he has given us. The wild goat doesn't need high hills to live on. The stork doesn't particularly need a fir tree in order to survive. And yet out of abundant generosity, the Lord says, I'll make a particular tree for that bird. I'll make a particular hill for that goat. He's he's abundant in his thoughtfulness of his creatures. He doesn't just want us to survive, but he wants us to thrive and enjoy his world. He says, I want men to have glad hearts and shining faces. So I'm going to give wine and bread and oil and I want you to enjoy the life that I have given. In the words of the old hymn, isn't it? He giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's what our God is like. But more than that, he's not only a generous God, but he's written generosity into the DNA of his universe. When you think of the sun, maybe a little bit too generous this weekend. But he has given the sun to the righteous and the unrighteous that we all might enjoy light and health and the warmth of the sun. He designed clouds, didn't he, that wouldn't just exist to float in the air, but that would give water so it would fall on the earth so that grass and crops might flow and that we might drink and that animals and beasts and even rats might enjoy health and life. He made grass so that it could give its life for the cattle in the fields. He's written generosity into the DNA of his whole universe. Every part of his creation exists in order to be generous in a way that both honors the generous God and reflects him. And so too with us, humanity. Think of Adam in the garden. He was made by God to give life to his wife. And then they together as man and woman existed to give life to the whole of creation in their care of it, in their giving of time and energy to caring for the animals and the crops. Humanity exists to be generous to others, to each other. That's why we are here. And so it should come as a surprise to us as we go on to read scripture, when humanity begins to take life instead of give life. We begin to to hoard 
instead of give. We start to shrivel up and look inwardly instead of consistently looking out for the benefit of others. This is what the scriptures call sin. We're hoarding up for ourselves instead of flowing out in reflection of the God who made us. And so because of this sin, God made a new humanity, a people of faith who would once again reflect his generous nature out into the world. And they'd reflect his nature by caring for others, by overflowing in their hearts of love, but by their collective thriving through giving away. And through this tiny nation called Israel, he, gave, he gives them freedom. He releases them from captivity. He brings them to a homeland. He, they experience the saving generosity of God. Now, this is why throughout this book of Proverbs, generosity among the people of God is less commanded and more expected. Many of these Proverbs about generosity aren't commands. They're they're expressing that this is the way you are if you are the people of faith. It would be a surprise to Solomon if he didn't see this spirit of kindness spreading easily through the people who have been united to a generous God. Why? Because they don't trust in their stored wealth. They don't trust in themselves and hoarding up for themselves. They trust in the Lord the maker of heaven and earth, the one who gives and takes away where we can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this is where we meet the wisdom of Proverbs. And I just want to say three brief things from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 to 26. So let me read these verses again. Let's remember these Proverbs are written to the people of faith who've experienced the redemption of Christ coming out of Egypt. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. So three important lessons Solomon teaches us here. And the first is this, that Solomon sees generosity as an investment, not a loss. You know, when we give away, we think, should I give so much? Because I'm giving away of myself and therefore I'm losing what I have. I'm losing my money. I'm losing my time. I'm losing my gifts. I'm losing my energy by giving it all away to everybody else. I'm losing. But Verse 24 reframes our thinking by directing our attention to the life of a crop farmer and his seed. Think of the crop farmer. He buys the seed in bulk, doesn't he? He goes to the market or whatever. He buys the seed. He brings it back to his farm and he stores it up in his barns. But then planting season comes. And what does he do? Does the farmer think to himself, Right, I've just paid for this crop. I have just hoarded this crop. I've spent huge amounts of time and energy and money, and I'm going to keep it in my barns. 
and I'm not going to plant it because I don't want to waste my seed. I'm just going to keep it in my barns. I'm going to store it up because I don't want to give it away. I'm not one for throwing money into the ground, quite literally, so I am not going to plant this year. But of course, that's not the farmer's thought. He knows that by taking the seed from his barn and scattering it over the plowed field, yes, he loses it in one sense, but when harvest time comes, he gains exponentially. It's by giving that he gains. He knows, says verse 24, that there is one who scatters, yet increases more. He also knows that there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Now, this is how we are to understand our generosity towards others. Like seed planted in other people's hearts, we lose, in one sense, but it's going to bear fruit in them. There's going to be a harvest of gratitude to God in their soul. They are going to be strengthened through your service to them. They're going to be relieved of the financial burdens that have been weighing them down by your gifts. And they're going to feel loved by the energy that you've poured into bearing their burdens. Even as you pour out your life, there is harvest in the souls of the ones that you are going to. Now, it's important to consider the rewards promised for generosity, isn't it? Proverbs constantly promises rewards that God will honor your giving and will reward you greatly as a result. Now, a word of warning, this has been greatly misunderstood over the years, especially by TV evangelists who promise their hearers that if they gave it, give a seed gift to their ministry in order to buy them a new jet, then you will abundantly receive back. It's a deeply selfish gospel that has distorted the promises of Proverbs concerning financial generosity. And so we read these with caution, don't we, with our can't be true. But those misunderstandings, they flow not from, gra- from not grasping the differences from life under the old covenant, which is Proverbs is written to, to Israel as a nation, and the readers that we are now living life under the new covenant. Think of Israel, who Proverbs was originally written to. They're one nation under God. They've been rescued from the land of Egypt. They've been provided with manna in the desert and brought, brought to the promised land where they now live to establish a land on earth and an earthly Jerusalem, where they can worship God through the sacrifice of lambs in a physical temple in the city of Jerusalem. They lived under this very physical covenant. Yes, as Hebrews 11 says, it pointed them towards a heavenly land, and they looked through the symbols of the earthly stuff out into the heavenly land, But it's with that in mind that primarily the promises to them were earthly, pointing them to heaven. But it's in that, with that in mind that these promises should be understood. That as they gave away, so the Lord would continue to build the promised land. 
as he blessed their families with increased flocks. They could then give it away to the temple to be sacrificed uh, in honor of him. And as they lived under the Lord's blessing on earth, they would realize again, and the world would realize, this is a chosen nation. Because in the old covenant, you either lived under God's blessing on your obedience or his curse on your disobedience. We read about this later on in Proverbs 28, 27. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. But we live in this new covenant where Christ has fulfilled all of these physical types and all of these shadows. They've passed away in him. He's the true temple where we come to worship God. He's the sacrificial lamb who has received our curse upon himself in order to take us to this new Jerusalem. We are not one nation anymore. We are people spread through the world, looking only for that heavenly city and saying, where my heart is, that's where I'm going to store my treasure. So that when I'm generous to others, I'm investing, primarily not in this life, although there's an element of that, but I'm investing in heaven. I'm storing up my treasure there. So while the nation under Solomon would receive present physical rewards in the land for generosity, our rewards will be just as real, but will come primarily in the new land, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, we mustn't flatten out the promises as so many TV ministries do for their own financial gain. But neither, on the other hand, must we forget That as we generously scatter the seeds of self-giving, we will see a harvest of good, both in others' lives here and now, and even for them in their life to come, and also in our own lives. Think about this. We read from 2 Corinthians 8, where the Apostle Paul is commending the saints for gathering gifts to give to the hungry Christians in Judea. There he picks up on this father imagery, on this farmer imagery, and he says, Look, as you give your money to help the struggling Judean Christians, you're going to see some significant here and now benefits. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, The one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. There is a personal blessing as we give. We increase in our own gratitude to God for his generosity towards us. The more we give, the more we want to give. Because we realize in that moment we are reflecting the God who's given us everything to enjoy. And so there's a great personal benefit and the benefit to those that we are giving to as we give. That we increase together in a harvest of righteousness and thankfulness to our God. So generosity, it's an investment, not a loss. It's got present and eternal benefits. 
But then secondly, notice that it's generosity that reflects Jesus Christ best. It's no accident that Solomon speaks of generosity in terms of seed being sown. That's what he does here in Proverbs 11, doesn't he? When you give, he says, it's seed like the farmer being sown into the ground that will produce righteousness. And what Solomon's doing is he's pointing forward to the day when someone would come and plant his own life in the ground. And that giving of himself into the ground of death would produce a harvest of true righteousness and salvation. It's no coincidence, is it, that Jesus picks up on this imagery and he says, as he's going to die, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. And later we were told, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. For your sake, he became poor, so that by your poverty, uh, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. You see, in Christ, we see the, the very heart of God being poured out for men and for women and for young people who are in deep poverty. Our sin has stripped us bare of all that was beautiful and life-giving. We were a barren field, spiritually and morally bankrupt. We were like the prodigal son who'd gone away into the far country and spent it all on riotous living. We had nothing left. Bankrupt. But God so loved the world. Gave. To a bankrupt world, he gave. Seeing how empty we were of all the life that he had given us, how barren and naked, naked we had become, he gave his one and only son, Christ, who had always lived with his father, owning the universe, living in the wealth of his perfection, feasting at his table of abundant righteousness, separate from all the poverty and bankruptcy that comes from sinfulness. He left it all. He gave it all up. For our sake, he became poor. And we're going to remember in a few moments at this communion table, he gave his life. He gave his body. He gave his blood. He gave us his wealth of righteousness. He gave us his mercy. He gave us his forgiveness for our sake. He became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And how rich we are in him. He did not come saying, well, I'll come halfway and I'll give you so much, but you've got to give me something in return. No, he comes the whole way to die, to bleed and to suffer on the cross. That we morally bankrupt people could receive forgiveness and eternal life. Nothing else comes close to this generosity from our God and maker. For like a seed dying produces a harvest, so his cross has made us rich, <clears throat> rich beyond imagination. 
Our very salvation is based upon generosity. Without that, we have nothing. The generosity of the God who gave everything. And so it's no surprise, as we see lastly, that we are to reflect his generosity in all of life. Now, if you're in Proverbs 11, you see this. It's interesting, isn't it? The way Proverbs 11 considers what generosity means in a very practical way. But it doesn't begin by talking about giving to the nation or giving to the church or giving to missions. It begins by talking about how we are to give to our own workplaces, the places where we are employed, if we are. Verse 26. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Now, wouldn't you have expected him to say, blessing will be on the head of him who gives it all away? But he doesn't. Blessing is given to the one who shows generosity in the way he sells his grain. He could have hoarded it up for his own business. But instead, he shared it at reasonable cost with farmers around the locality when they were in need. It points, doesn't it, to generosity as being far more than just giving, uh, giving away without cost, money, time, and energy, giving it all away for free. There's more to generosity than that. Generosity, he's saying, also includes <clears throat> ethical business practices, fair pricing on goods sold, care that other similar businesses to ours also thrive. We're not stamping down on them. But colleagues in our worst workplace know that they can come to us and learn from our experiences and gifts and that they will receive a generous portion of our time. We won't do it begrudgingly. That our employees don't see us as stingy, but we encourage, encourage them by fair wages. Proverbs Solomon, he begins with, you want to be generous? Begin by healthy business practices, by being a good colleague at work. We can go on, can't we? What of our local communities? Do they see our family as a generous one, willing to serve our neighbours through kindness and self-giving? Do they see this church marked by generosity in the way that we are to humbly serve this community in their hour of need? That might be as already exists through children's works and food banks and community cafes. Maybe as the winter comes, hard to imagine, isn't it, that there'll be a, there's a fuel crisis and the energy prices will rock and people, the most vulnerable, will be struggling to heat their own homes. Is there a way that we are to be generous to this community, opening up the church, heating the church, maybe, encouraging the vulnerable to experience the generosity of the church? That our communities see the church as a hub of grace, a center of abundant compassion, a place where they can experience generous people reflecting their Lords. And what of us as members of Emmanuel? Always aren't we tempted to hold back on time and energy and finance when there are thousands perishing in the local community and further afield? How might we pour seeds of generosity around this globe that produce a harvest of righteousness? What does verse 30 say? The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life 
and he who wins souls is wise. The idea there is that the generosity of God's people brings life to the world, and that those who win souls to this path of wisdom, which is the fear of God, they are wise people indeed. And so may we be wise in the way that we reflect our giving God by generously lavishing out on each other, on our community, on our neighbors, on our colleagues, and all around us, lavishing out without holding back begrudgingly our time, our gifts, our energy, and our money, that the world might see for themselves the effect that Christ's death has had on us.